1: The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Hello, Chris England here. A little uh, bonus this time, um, like a DVD extra except it's just the extra, no DVD Um, what we're going to play is an interview that I did on a podcast with Tim Lovejoy, the podcast is called Dear Lovejoy, this is just the part where I'm talking about the Fun Factory, talking about this podcast, if you want to hear the rest, I'll talk a bit about some other things Uh, you can go to the Dear Lovejoy um, part of iTunes and there's lots of good stuff there Uh, but this is the talk I did with Tim, I hope you enjoy um, you've t- you're turning a trilogy of novels
2: you've written into a podcast. I am, uh, yeah. Can you, can you set up for the list, A, when did you write the novels, and um, set up the basic premise of, of the books? Well, it,
1: fe- it feels like to me that I've been writing the novels for almost forever. But okay. they came out in uh, 2014, 2016, 2018. Um, but uh, the reason why there's three of them is that the original idea was just just got so big that I reached a point where I had to stop and make it into two books, and then I had to stop again and make it into three books so i 've been writing it for for a long while for ten fifteen years probably mm. um, and it, the idea that i that I have written is it 's about the early career of um, of comedians like Charlie Chaplin and Stan laurel who were who were I was that 's the story that I was interested in that Stan Laurel of all people. Should have been Charlie Chaplin's understudy when they were like eighteen, nineteen, twenty, and they travelled around together for four years. And I wanted to tell that story because it's it's really interesting to me. Because Stan Laurel is a huge favourite of mine, and Charlie Chaplin has never made me laugh in in, in anything that I've ever seen him do. So, um, wow. so I'm telling that story. I, to tell that story, I felt like Charlie that, that Charlie Chaplin had. Had had um, spent his whole um, career trying to keep Stan Laurel down, trying to keep Stan Laurel under his thumb. Is that a fact, or is that your opinion? No, it's a fact. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> same thing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. In my house, that's the same thing.
2: <laughs>
1: well, no. I mean, the, the things that the things that kicked it off for me were because of, because I came at it from the point of view of being a fan of of Stan Laurel and Lauren Hardy, but Stan Laurel above all as a as as, the, as the, the comedy genius of the 20th century. Um, to find that he'd been, because he's two years younger than Chaplin, had been Chaplin's understudy for, for four years, and, a, and, a, and that this wasn't mentioned at all in Charlie Chaplin's autobiography, which he wrote at the end of his, life, at the end of his career, let's say, in 1964. Um, and uh, Stan doesn't get a single mention, not a single mention, and they basically lived in each other's pockets. For four years, they were they shared rooms on tour. They were they were uh, to hear Stan Laurel talk... Stan Laurel would never say a bad word about Charlie Chaplin, and Stan Laurel was very open about the time that they that they spent together, and would never you know would never have run him down, would never have uh, had a bad word to say about him, as I say. But Charlie Chaplin simply didn't mention that he that he even knew Stan Laurel, and that I found a fascinating thing to start with, because it spoke to me about Charlie Chaplin needing to keep Stan Laurel in his place that charlie chaplin was so protective of his own legend his own his own sense of his own genius as an artist that he couldn't he couldn't allow the space for let's say his nearest rival let's say you know that, that there's a way of looking at it that there were it, of that of that generation there were maybe 3 uh, big uh, comedy figures there was stan laurel and charlie chaplin and buster keaton say and he ca- and charlie chaplin Never gave a moment's credit to the other two, right. and kept them in their place. And what I found an that one? I found that fascinating. So I wanted to write. I wrote, wanted to write that story from the point of view of a third character, who is my narrator, who is a guy called Arthur Dando, who was a real guy, who went on the tours with these with these two, with Chaplin and Stan Laurel. He's real. He's a real guy. Yeah. Oh. But I, but as a character in my books, yeah, he's kind of. He's kind of a composite of two or three people. But there was a real Arthur Dando who I've made a contemporary of Chaplin and Stan Laurel uh, so that they can be rivals and go through the same experiences and be on the same tours. And the real Arthur Dando was on some of those things and got sacked off some of those things. Right. And it dipped in and out more, more than I've made it. But the real Arthur Dando did... Go on tour for the Fred Carnot comedy company, the famous Fred Carnot comedy. It was the giants of the music hall, the Edwardian music hall, with Chaplin and Stan Laurel. And Arthur Dando, the real Arthur Dando, and Stan Laurel got sacked by Carnot for asking for more money on a tour of America, came back to England, and did a double act together. So basically, Arthur Dando is, is Stan Laurel's first double act partner. And so, in my second book, I, that is, a, they, they're knocking around together, and then in my third book, he does a double act with Oliver Hardy, and right. so he's kind of cancelled out by history, kind of as, a, as like a maths equation. You know, there's Laurel and Dando, and there's Dando and Hardy, and you put them together, you end up with Laurel and Hardy thereafter. And he introduces he ends up introducing them and having his own, having his going, going his own way,
2: kind yeah. of thing. Uh, we'll have to. You'll have to give me some more knowledge on on what the scene was like back in back in the day. My my whole knowledge of uh, of Laura, the musical, yeah, it basically comes from the Steve Coogan film. That's literally what I probably know of that era. Which which Steve Coogan film? Um, the, the recent one about um, Stan and Ollie. Stan and Ollie, Cause, yeah, because yeah. Stan and
1: Ollie is is essentially is the is the very end of Lauren Hardy's yeah. career. It's after they've made their last film, actually, and it's a great film. The Stan and Ollie, I think, it's, I really enjoyed it, but it doesn't it doesn't tread on the toes of this at all yeah. because the characters in in the fun factory novels are 18 19 20 21 and stan and Ollie is the is the is the tail end and it's not, that's not really musical that's kind of post post second world war variety which is similar but it's not quite it's okay. not quite the same because already by then uh, you know in the in the late forties the early fifties, the movies had kicked in and, and kicked musical in the teeth and then television you know so so the so the money that was there the audiences that were there was were much less in the in the period that i 'm writing about in the fun factory. the Edwardian music hall is before the cinema is before television is before the radio the music hall is the there 's theater there's there 's legitimate theater if you like, but music hall is the people 's entertainment is 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 a th- the thing that, that that offers everything that cinema and television and radio offered subsequently, which is spectacle and and music and comedy and and a sort of working class um, thing as well. Mm. And so, a, a, a typical music hall bill, let's say, would play two three times a day. Sometimes in London, in somewhere like Wilsden or Ealing, would play to a theatre that's like two thousand seats and would fill and would fill three times wow. a day and what they offered was not only comedy because there'd be front of tabs acts in front of the com- in front of the curtains there would be a solo comedian or a solo singer with a banjo you know or a solo clog dancer or something like that and then the curtain would go up on spectacle and that was what fred carno did what fred carno provided were huge spectacular comedy sketches and his his organization which was based at the fun factory which is a real place and in Camberwell um, he would have from there maybe 10 12 companies touring the company touring the country at any one time sometimes in america as well uh with just enormous routines some of the ones that um some of the ones that I write about in the book let's say the football match because we're football yeah. guys yeah. there's a sketch called the football match and imagine staging this now okay It would be in the middle of a music hall bill. It would be maybe first thing after the interval. And there would be, you know, there'd be solo singers, there'd be a couple of trick cyclists or or tightrope walkers or something. It's spectacle, but small. But then after the interval, you go to the football match, which is the FA Cup final on stage, Okay, So there's, there's 22 players. There's a referee. And these players are not just... Uh, actors some of these players are recent ex-international professional footballers who were on the ruppers because they're you know their footballers weren't well paid in those days and they're scratching around for a living but and they would be introduced one at a time. You know, here's Fred Spikesley of the Wednesday, who played for England, who scored the winning goal in the cup final. And, and in Sheffield, he's a god. And people cheer, blah, blah, blah. And there's Crabtree from Aston Villa. There's athosmith from Aston Villa. There's, there's great players. And imagine doing that sketch now and introducing, oh, here's Paul Sculls, you know. Yeah. Well, here's Jamie Carragher. <laughs> Boo! You, <know? laughs> you don't like Jamie. I don't like <laughs> Jamie Carragher. But he likes me. So, you know, on we go. But, um... But what was the but sketch? No, but the sketch the sketch was uh, it was it was like a sketch it was about half an hour long it was in three acts it involved a villain who was was the part chaplin first played a, a villain with a with a you know a cape and a mustache who was trying to bribe the goalkeeper which was the star part to throw the cup final so it was a game it was a game about it was a sketch rather about corruption about you know comedy villainy and it, it climaxed with the cup final which the keeper was either going to throw or not but it would not only have the, all the players and the referee on the stage and some of them celebrities in their own right you would have a crowd behind and there would be 80 people 80 extras on a little sloping thing and they, what they used to do was put the tallest ones on the front and the smallest ones at the back so they, it gave a kind of illusion of of perspective mm-hmm. and then behind them was like a psych a curved sort of painted backdrop like the thing they had at Arsenal you know, when they, when they pulled down the stand yeah. on at one end with faces on it that that was matched to the scale of the of the people in front of it, so it looked like the crowd went on and on and on, and it within this crowd, the faces would pull out, and people would run around behind and shout something through, st- stick their face through and shout something, and then put the face back in and run to the next one and So it looked like the crowd went all the way back and and they used to have in front of this um, psych this backdrop, they had these big electric fans. On the floor pointing upwards. And uh, each on, on, attached to the front of this um, psych, this backdrop, would be like stitched sleeves of jackets kind of thing connected to the painting and when they'd turn the fans on when there was a goal they turn the fans on and all all the arms on this painting would go whoa up. Oh, and all wow. the hats and there'd be hats and they'd they'd blow hats up in the air so it looked like a huge i mean it was a huge crowd. imagine getting 80 people on stage now and a yeah, 100 people on stage because there's the players and stuff and this is the thing this is the difference between what the musical was like what the edwardian musical was like and what what you're talking about—the Stan and Ollie era variety—was much more, you know, double acts and and, and people off 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 them out of the movies and people out, you know, starting to cash in, starting to do what you would expect now. You know, he was at that uh, Simon um,
2: Simon Cow apparently with his light show on uh, X Factor. He he was like uh, the first series or something, first couple of series. He had a million pounds spent on that stage. Yeah. And then he came in the next year. Stage not good enough. Two million pounds. Yeah. It's a bit like, well, this this
1: this guy's doing it. Uh, yeah. how,
2: how did he make it work financially work for
1: that? Because well, you know, they, they were they were bringing in the the, the, the Empire in Willesden or in Ealing or something. They were bringing in two thousand people three times a day. You know, and it right. just worked. And they were paying these they were paying these ex professional footballers next to nothing. Yeah, but uh, for the for the extras and for the the comedy performers in the fred carno company they were they were paid less than they would be paid for a for a an, a one-off gig let's say but it was 52 weeks a year so the, for the, the exchange in exchange for the security they would be they would take less money. so he didn't used to he didn't used to pay that his performers what would be the going rate if they were a solo kind of thing and which is how, why he he would lose them he would lose someone like uh, let's say charlie chaplin's brother was a number 1 for fred carno and he would get offers and go somewhere else and um and someone like carno couldn't hang on to those people because he wasn't paying the going rate for for them as a star comedian right but his philosophy always was that it was his name that put the bums on seats and he and so every everyone was a unit that was replaceable right everyone was Who a cog was in a Who was he was Karno he carno yeah um, well, he was a great um, entrepreneur um, and a great, sort of genius, really. Of because all these sketches came came kind of out of his head onto the back of an envelope, and he and he would he would explain them to the companies that he was trying to get to do them, and it, it, they would all be playing in his head. And he would, right. and where he'd come from was he was a, he was an acrobat originally and um, he his, <laughs> his, his name was Westcott was Frederick Westcott, and he took up the name Carno just by accident almost after um, he was he was unemployed and hanging around down at a place called the Corner, which is in Waterloo, which is where uh, acts and turns and actors used to go, and then um, producers who wanted someone at short notice would go down and find that 's where all the un- unemployed actors were hanging, ar- hanging around waiting to be tapped up and it, there was a there was a uh, an acrobatic turn called the three carnos who had who had gone missing and uh, weren't uh, they needed a replacement for the bill that night and fred Carno had acrobat skills picked up a couple of acrobats put an act together in an afternoon and stood in for the three carnos that evening, and it went very well, and they got booked for the following week. <laughs> and that whereupon the real three Carnos came back, and he changed his name from Carno with a C to Carno with a K, and carried on. So there were three Carnos with a C, and then three Carnos with a K. Right. And he, but he his his upbringing was was just doing whatever it was to 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 make a make a, a, a pound, you know. And he used to he used to um, do twenty one shows a day uh, when he was young. Um, in a a circus and he would do his acrobatic show but he would also do a comic sketch about Robin Hood he would do there'd be a singing troupe and he would do all of these things and he would do 21 shows in a day at at fairs at local fairs and so he had he had a huge grounding in what in what worked in what worked for a, a live audience and was able to translate that into uh, An ad, you know, a, a vast um, army of people. Fred Karno's army. They were, you know, they were called, and um, or the, actually the actual army were called right. <laughs> during the First World War, um, and and had a huge organisation based out of Camberwell. Sent companies all over the country, touring all the time, in a huge repertoire of sketches that he would devised. That were all just huge. Just
2: and were the were the performers from all over Britain? Yeah. So they travelled down from
1: Scotland and yeah, across yeah. from Wales. Well, it was a great, company. it was a very sought-after career right, um, gig because mm. you know even though the money wasn't as good as you would get as a solo, yeah, you could learn your trade there and leave as a solo. You know, five years on from from there, and a lot of a lot of very well thought of um, top line comedy performers never left. You know, never left, never never escape the apron strings, you know. So so what does an
2: understudy mean, though? When you say, because obviously when Charlie Chaplin's on stage, there's just one of him.
1: No, not at all. That's not right. Right. You know. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 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 There are several of him. No. uh, (laughs) Is it like the FA Cup and the World Cup? No, but he's not. uh, Within a Carnot sketch. You're not a solo. You're not a solo performer. You're the number one of a company, but then there are a couple of number twos. There are a couple of, you know, I know it's it, it's it's wee wee and poo, obviously, but it's <laughs> it, 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 there are a couple of number twos who are who are, and if the un, number one is ill or in, indisposed, one of the number twos steps up because they're cogs in a machine, you know. And so, the, so for example, the great sketch that Stan understudied Charlie in was the sketch that, uh, that's called Mummingbirds, Birds which you might have seen in the Robert Downey Jr film which is the sketch which Charlie Chaplin made his name which was Fred Karno's greatest sketch which was basically a music hall bill within a music hall bill and they'd build a fake sort of theatre on the stage with with you know where the where the boxes are at the side of the stalls yeah. they would build identical boxes on the stage and and the people in there wouldn't be the audience; they would be actors. actors yeah. And then the, you would see um, acts of deliberate, a, a musical bill of deliberate badness, of deliberate, de- deliberate off-key singing, and uh, poets reciting dreadful poetry, and a wrestler called the Terrible Turkey, who would What's challenge it? people to come. Who was like a string bean in a, in a giant costume, who would challenge people to fight him. And so so the people in the boxes could comment on and it and the people in the boxes would heckle them and throw stuff and and the main character of mumming birds was was a character called the drunken swell which sidney chaplin played and which charlie played and which was the, the 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 routine that made his made his name kind of thing uh, which he played in the uk and he played in america also and where he got spotted and picked up in my second book <laughs> but um uh, and it's the thing and robert Downey junior does it in in richard attenborough's film the richard attenborough's chaplin film and it's like he he comes in late to the lower box on one side and tries to hang his coat up on a peg and misses and disappears uh, and he's drunk and he's posh he's drunk he's posh all the all, all the, the, the 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 butts of the of the great fred Cardinal sketches were all posh guys usually called Usually called in one sketch after another Archibald Binks. Right. <laughs> okay, this was just a thing that he'd. There'd be an Archibald Binks in all his sketches. Oh, hi. um, and then the drunken swelled character, the chaplain character, would. Uh, you know, would people be watching him trying to work out what was going on, and then he'd fall out of the thing, and he'd get out of the box onto the stage, and he'd get involved in the acts. And that one of the acts was a magician, and the, the drunken swell would come and try and show how his tricks were done. And then the, the, the big, the big sort of slapstick climax of it was. Uh, a wrestler who, who would take on all comers, and the drunken swell would come, and he would do the classic things that Chaplin was doing for years after, you know, punching and missing and swinging right round and uh, you know, play the, the, the slapstick fighting. And in, meanwhile, in the upper boxes and the other the other boxes, there would be maybe the number two comedian who would be the main heckler, who would be like a, a, an uncle or an aunt depending on whether it was a man in drag or uh, Mm. someone who preferred to play as an uncle and they would have a naughty boy character who would be the one who was mainly throwing things and the naughty boy character was what Stan would play and Stan would be playing that character and understudying Chaplin in the uh, Drunken Swell thing so if Chaplin was indisposed but he never was if Chaplin was indisposed then Stan would have stepped up to do that and everyone everyone within a Carno company knew all the other parts. The people were kind of interchangeable. And one of the things that I write, I write in, in the first book, in The Fun Factory, is Charlie Chaplin trying to find which of these parts, before he gets to play the number one part, which of these parts will show him off to best advantage and, you know, saying, right, I'm doing that part now and that guy had to move to this um, but they were all interchangeable cogs in a, in, a, in a machine and they could come out of this company and to another one that needed, that needed a, a, a magician, say, in another company in Birmingham somewhere and he'd get on a train and go and fill in there and someone else would fill in here. And so it was a, it was a massive, a massive organisation. How do you know all this? <laughs> I've made it up, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I, I write fiction. Uh, no, that's what I, I do. I, I, I write novels. I well, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there are, there are, there are some, very, there are some, there are not very many, but there are some books yeah. about, about uh, Fred Carnot. Uh, one is, uh, one is called, what's it called now? Master of Mirth, I think it's called. Um, and there are some, there's one that's, a little bit critical of him because he was an odd figure in his private life yeah. and there's one that was written from quite a distance up his backside that's the way where where he can't do any wrong kind of thing but there are also some very good books if anyone is particularly interested in this period some very good books by A.J. Marriott who is a, hist- a comedy historian who writes about, uh, about his, uh, Chaplin Stage by Stage is his book mm-hmm. and it and it covers all these all these tours it shows it's the dates of all these tours and so i basically built the spine of my book around oh. around his research why are you so fascinated by it i don't know really i mean i, I i'm interested in what makes comedians tick and so i was particularly interested in in the contrast between what... because I, I always loved Stan, Stan Laurel as a child, and my father loved Laurel and Hardy, and and brought me up on Laurel and Hardy, and I've read uh, Stan Laurel was never was never vain enough to write an autobiography, whereas Chaplin was was well vain enough to do that, um, and uh, so people have written about Stan Laurel with that, but there's some you know some, and Laurel and Hardy both just seemed like really um on screen and off just really appealing characters really appealing people whereas chaplin always struck me as a bit of a bastard and so you know i i was drawn to the i was drawn to like almost defending stan laurel against right. against the notion that chaplin was the greatest that they would ever been mm. it's stan laurel towards the end of his life
2: though is he so he was. I know very little about this. So I could get okay. this wrong, but he he seemed to be quite saddened by all. Well, he stopped. Didn't he stop performing? Refused
1: to be in films because he used he, to riot. Yes, I mean what happened was um, uh, Oliver Hardy uh, predeceased him by uh, a good few years, yeah. so Hardy wasn't in the fifties and in the period just really just after the Stan and Ollie film that was just out. He started to have very serious sort of health issues and lost a lot of weight and then gained a lot of weight and lost and and by the end was very much thinner than he'd he'd been and when he died, you know Stan Laurel didn't work again after that. But what he did for the next is he lived for another eight years. Uh, What he would do recreationally was write more Laurel and Hardy material. He would write to to entertain himself. He would write. You know he wasn't insane and didn't think that Ivardi was going to come back and do them or anything but he would he was so he was such a sort of uh, comedy powerhouse he was such a sort of creative powerhouse he would still write lauren hardy material but if if anyone wrote to him, he would always reply and he would yes. send back sketches to them isn't it though I but heard. that's that's such a sort of he's such an appealing sort of character yeah he was very he was very uh, meticulous about replying to correspondence and and always had let's say always had a good word to say for. Uh, and advice for up-and-coming yeah. comedians, which Chaplin, it would be anathema to Chaplin, because he would, everyone, to Chaplin, every, even though he was he was on the very top rung of the yeah. ladder, everyone was a threat to him, and so he would try to keep people in their place. But Stan Laurel was very much a mentor to people like Dick Van Dyke, let's say, and uh, Jerry Lewis, and ca- characters who had, who idolised him also. Mm. And who and to whom he would teach the, the physicality that he'd learned in the in the music hall. He would teach to them, and they were and they all went and Dick Van Dyke made a very uh, moving uh, eulogy at Stanal's funeral, and was responsible, I think, for the uh, two um, two funny gentlemen, two funny gentlemen quotes that is often. Right. Often bandied about. But um
2: I understand the um, Stan Laurel um also left his phone number in the phone book. Yeah, it was you in know the those? phone book. So this that is you, how, could just, yeah. you could just phone him up and talk
1: to him yeah, about it. That's how Dick Van Dyke <laughs> that's how Dick Van Dyke got in touch with him. Is it? Yeah, Dick oh. Van Dyke he oh, Dick Van Dyke in in his eulogy, I think, recounted Trying everything he knew to get Stan Laurel's phone number from agents and from people who'd worked with him and blah, and no one, no one would help him. And then he found it in the phone book, yeah, in the Santa Monica phone book.
2: Amazing, and my little bit of research that I did, which is, uh, it's, it's not. Um, uh, well, you didn't read
1: my book, so you know.
2: <laughs> Do you know what I've listened? To, I've listened to some of the podcasts though. It's very oh, cool. good. You're, yeah, reading, yeah, yeah. you're reading the podcast. I am. Yeah. 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 But, uh, yeah. but you're you're. Um, <laughs> negative, I'm only teasing you. Like. You're negative towards Charlie Chaplin, but that man had an amazing amount of talent. He was even a composer who won an Oscar for his music. I he mean, did. He
1: did. He's, I mean, he's unarguably a, a, a talented fellow. But these all these guys, because you just you look at them and it seems so old-fashioned sometimes when you watch it. Their talent is phenomenal, isn't it? Yeah, that, I mean, I think do. Chaplin has dated more than the others. I think, and it's partly because the the staple of a Lauren Hardy film and the staple of a Buster Keaton film also is is the is the comedy, is the slapstick comedy, is the physical comedy. And Stan Laurel invented so many techniques that subsequent comedy films use was because it, it, film was new when he was sound film particularly was new when he was uh, first working and for instance you know one of the things that he invented which which you see in cartoons all the time is you know hardy would would fall down the stairs and you'd fall out of the shot from the top of a staircase and you'd hear Boom, 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 <laughs> him going downstairs, you'd do, oh! uh-huh. and you'd hear a tremendous crash at the bottom of the thing, but you wouldn't see it because you're still looking at the top of the stairs. And then you'd cut down to Hardy, and he's and the house is ruined, and he's, why don't you do something to help yeah. me? You know, but Stan Laurel, that that thing of falling out of shot and just doing it in sound, which is in Tom and Jerry, which is in Bugs Bunny, which is in in countless comedies, since is, is things that he was inventing. You know. And uh-huh. I think that I think that because yeah. because their first thought, Stan Laurel and Buster Keaton, let's say, but particularly Stan Laurel, his first thought was where's the gag, and he didn't mind who got the laugh as long as there was a laugh, right. and so he was happy to make laughs for Oliver Hardy. And if Oliver Hardy, he used to watch. The, this, Dick Van Dyke, I think, tells the story of uh, being round at his apartment, it's quite a humble sort of little apartment, and they're watching. Laurel and Hardy, and Laurel is just watching Hardy, and going, "He was so funny. He was so funny. Brilliant. Look at him. He's so funny. And he doesn't watch himself. He's watching Hardy. Yeah. And funny. I think there's a there's a sort of there's a sort of selflessness to yeah. that to that to that comedy, and Chaplin's is all about him. Chaplin's is a, is a much more narcissistic presence, I think. <laughs>
2: It's weird how it went with their comedy. So the music hall stuff was obviously they had lines; they would sing, dance, do all that sort of stuff. Then we went to the original films. No sound apart from a soundtrack played at the top. So Chaplin, I assume Hardy and everyone, they had to invent just visual jokes.
1: Yes, but then that was that was the the upbringing that they had for music hall as well. I mean they they would have they would have lines in the sketches, but they were basically. The skills they were learning were pantomime skills, were physical skills. So the musical stuff was basically just visual stuff. It wasn't just anything, but it was it was a lot of it was physical. Right. I mean, there 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 are stories that musical comedy was only pantomime because of because of um, uh, stringent regulations put by the Lord Chancellor. Um, censorship, regularly so they weren't allowed to have dialogue in, in, in the music hall because then then it would be classified as a, as a theatre. And I don't think that that is true. Right. But, but nonetheless, these sketches were designed to play not only in this country but also in France and in Belgium. And you know, so they had to have they they used basically the international language of pantomime. They would do dialogue. There would be dialogue, but their the chief skills that they learnt were physical. Were physical comedy, were slapstick comedy, were expressing what Chaplin was great at, was you know expressing a, a, a feeling, of playing a scene through through his body language, through through mime, and that as I'm sure you can imagine, once that silent movies come along, that is a very transferable skill because you're only using your body to tell a story, and that was why Chaplin was was such a monster hit because of the upbringing that he'd had in the musical in the carno Company
2: I watched some footage the other day that suddenly they had special effects as well to work with um they had uh, perspectives and stuff like that to work with the view that, rather than a stage and so yeah, it, it, yeah. Charlie Chaplin looked much more daring than he actually ever was and
1: yeah but it was of, an it was an era when they would do they would do their own stunts because yeah. they didn't know not to because, mm. the, because the, the industry was new. Yeah. And the, there are stories of uh, Max Sennett, who did the Keystone, who was the, the head of Keystone, who was right. one of the first producers to make Chaplin films, and did the Keystone Cops and so on. And Max Sennett himself used to play on screen. And there's a story about him um, doing, doing the classic the classic silent movie villain thing of the, the girl tied to the railway tracks, yeah. and the train is coming, yeah. and they have to get the, they get the girl just in time, for, uh, before the train comes. And they absolutely did that. They absolutely ha- tied a girl to the tracks, untied her, picked her up, and moved her out of the way wow. just in time as the train was coming. Because they didn't know how not to do it. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And they, di- they did it, and th- because every every silent filmmaker was trying to outdo the one... The wow. next one, so the absolutely and, and the story of his of the train brushing his arm as he's and he only just mm. and it looks it looks great because it they nearly great. died. You
2: know. uh, did Charlie Chaplin ever move? Because Charlie Chaplin, you know him as silent movies. Did yes. he ever move to movies with sound? Because uh, you know, yes, um, yes, he
1: did. Yes, I um, he, he he clung to silent movies much longer than everyone else. Um, because he regarded himself as this as this great pantomime artist, and he felt like it was the the purity of his art was best uh, expressed silently with 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 music but as a, as a pantomime thing so when silent movies came in in the in the sort of mid late twenties, he carried on si- sound movies rather when silent movies he carried on making silent movies when Lauren Hardy were making sound were already making sound movies.
2: What was the period of time then that silent movies were around for? How many Silent uh, Movies
1: up to about twenty six, twenty seven. So what when did they start? When did which start? Sand movies no the silent movies. Silent movies. Well um, there were silent movies in the in the first decade of the twentieth century. Right. Um Chaplin started um, and it was a very young industry then. Chaplin started at the end of nineteen thirteen and made dozens of short films in 1914 and became a star all around the world in 1914 so the industry is very was very young then so they would be making films for two or three years before that that were starting to get that were, and theatres were starting to turn into cinemas and uh, and there were nickelodeons that you could go in which which would show it for a nickel obviously Why why did
2: they all want to go to america was that for the dance hall stuff or because the movie industry started
1: uh it wasn't because of the, the music the, the um movie industry was was not it was not the thing that it that it is subsequently it's not uh, uh, when chaplin left um the carno company to go and make movies for max Sennett, um everyone else in the company um thought that he was crackers and thought that he was, he would never be able to come back. He'd never be able to come back to the, their livelihood was on the stage. They went to America because there was a big vaudeville. There were several big vaudeville circuits in America, which were like the musical circuits in in the UK, but just more of them and bigger. And so Carno would send his company would send a company every every year probably over to America to tour the same material, but just in American vaudeville, alongside. You know, Buster Keaton and his and his family's act, and Harry Langdon and his his act. Yeah. So there was just a way to go and make money. Yeah, and it, there was a big thriving live performance circuits. Mm. and Because uh, before the movies, you know, that uh, it was the same in America. Vaudeville was the people's entertainment, was spectacle, was everything. <clears throat> Do you know what interests me about that time is the uh, moustache. <laughs> because...
2: <laughs> well you know, the moustache
1: was was yeah i mean obviously that toothbrush moustache is not quite it uh, well, didn't quite resonate in the same way as it does have. <laughs> but it was but there's three people famous for but it, it was a there? big there's... gift for chaplin when he made the great dictator which was a talkie in the during the in the 40s during the war where he yeah. played he played essentially hitler he played a, 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 a character called adenoid Hinkel who was essentially Hitler. And but Oliver uh, Hardy had one as well. Oliver huh? Hardy had one, he did. Yeah. It's like is it... just the nicest man. But do, and... <laughs> but, but, but do we
2: do we think it was it was Perceived as a comedy moustache, and if it was, yeah, yeah, why did Adolf Hitler go? Well, I'm going to have one of
1: those then. He was a great, a great comedian. He was a great live act. <laughs> <laughs> he, was great he was. He His was. His speeches, yeah, yeah. honestly, they just were just a great th- live th- act.
2: You <laughs> <the> about <laughs> <the laughs> rally and everything. He, he yeah. got the crowd there, but I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? That moustache. It like, is, but like, you no know, no one yeah, will it, ever wear that moustache again. Actually, Michael Jordan did.
1: Did he? Have you seen the picture of Michael no, Jordan? No. All right,
2: I'm gonna, I'm gonna literally get this up for you. Yeah. Whilst I um, speak, because I,
1: I'm it's pretty hard. sure Prince Harry has had one. Pretty oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't. Think...
2: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, Michael Jordan. I remember hearing about this. Uh, okay. Sorry about this. Anyone listening? But. Um...
1: Well, you have to think. You have to think about um, you know Chaplin and. Uh, Oliver Hardy, it must have been a bit of a blow when Hitler started... Oh, crams! He did it. go for it. Michael Jordan <laughs> went
2: for it. Went for the what do you call it? Do you, what do you call it? A toothbrush? It's a
1: toothbrush. Yeah. Is
2: that what it was called? Yeah. yeah. Do you reckon there was lots of men walking around with that, or was it just? I like, think a,
1: just, I I imagine a lot it. of them just shaved them off in nineteen seventy nine.
2: But prior to that, do you think in that time that was like a look for people? Yeah. Think oh it was yeah. Just yeah. A comedy yeah. Look?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think it was just a comedy look. I think it was a it was a sort of because all the uh, the comedians were were. Perennially playing um poor men, trying to look posh, and I think it was a sort of it was a sort of little pretentious little moustache. I think. I think. Yeah, because since
2: I because since I know I'm talking to you about this, I just you know as as my mind does starts thinking about things, and 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 I just thought the the clothes they wear are very clown like, very baggy, yeah. And they have the little bowler hats, yeah. all of them. They always have a hat and stuff. Like that. And I was thinking, is. Is this an exaggerated outfit of what people were wearing at the time, or
1: is it what people were wearing at the time no it 's a, a, a lot of that stuff comes from actually comes from Carno Carno invented a lot of a lot of those sort of shorthand comedy things I mean Chaplin is credited i think uh, certainly wrongly for. Wearing a, a too short, a too small jacket and too large trousers, right, okay. and big shoes, and really that was a staple. Uh, that was a musical staple. There are lots of people that he nicked that from, and lots of people who claimed that they'd thought of it as well. But really, Carno came up with a lot of that stuff. A lot of, or you know, the jacket too small, the trousers too big. That looks funny. The bendy cane that Chaplin had—that was a George Roby thing. So, so do and, the do clowns come after that? Then do they? Do they like the clown outfit? The post. It's, yeah, it's not. It's not really a clown. It's not really a, a connected to the clown thing. Uh, it feels it, it though, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. But They've it's more. Gold. It's more of a. It's more of a sort of faded um, respectability thing. It's more of a tramp thing. It's more of a. There was, you know, the 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 um, the tramp is obviously Chaplin's great um, apparently creation. Yeah, but uh, tramp tramp comedy was a whole genre. In in the music hall and in American vaudeville, they were, and they would all do that. They would all. It was a tramp thing more than it was a clown thing. Why have you done it as a podcast? Yeah, I mean, I uh, the thing is, I spent a lot of time on the books, and the first one came out now five years ago, and the podcast thing seemed to be a, a, an interesting way to to breathe sort of new life into it, to keep it, to make it, to make it a, a live project, you know, to and to and to put. And to put some things also around the edge of it that that you can't put, you know, you're always perennially cutting things from a book. The mm. I mean, book is always um, twice as long as it needs to be, and the ideas that you can't put into it. And with a podcast, you know, I can talk to people about it, and you know, I can read the book, and people can hear it as a as a as a, an experience. But also, we're hoping to talk to some people like yourself we talked to some people about it as well and so so then it, it becomes a a, a a denser richer sort of experience it feels like this is crying out to be a netflix series to me doesn't it though it
2: does yeah, yeah. And it, but yeah. you know the way netflix works you know they, the few good things about netflix is they yeah. refuse to launch that release their ratings and they also they've also got formulas they do yes. and I think this is so their formula because of the Steve Coogan film, which was really popular, yes. as we know that yes. worked. People love the dancehall stuff, you know. Yes, And yes. the idea that there's a narrative where Charlie Chaplin's not the nicest guy either, I think yes. is so up there straight. I think th-
1: the difficult thing is to get something like this in front of those people, um, partly because it's really difficult. I've discovered it's another reason for doing it as a podcast, actually, It's really difficult to put a book in front of someone and have them read it, you know Even if you're Netflix and you're desperate and voracious for content, you know They want to see 200 words about it, you know, and even um, I tried to get it away as a a radio, a Radio 4 serial Mm. And, you know, an offers round comes around and you can't show them the book You're not Mm. allowed to, you know, they won't read the book you have to basically write, jot a couple of things on the back of an envelope and then it goes along with, uh, it's up against an idea that someone else has had in the pub the day before, you know. Isn't that that the beautiful thing thing about podcasting now? And the great thing about YouTube
2: is if you've got an idea for a film or a sketch or something, you can go, hey, I can make that and stick it out there. And at least you've made it. And like, you've written these books, which obviously take a lot of work, but you can go, as you say, breathe a new life into it and just offer it to another medium. So maybe I'm more... I think so.
1: And I think you keep it, you keep, you keep it feeling like it's got a pulse, you know, and I think we'll get to a point where, you know, Netflix guy, you try, you get to speak to Netflix guy and you say to him, "I've written these three books. They'd make they'd make a, a, a cracking three series if you like, of uh, on Netflix," and, you go, oh, and you'll see in his behind his eyes, you'll go, oh, "Books." <laughs> I've, got to read, I've, got, I've got to read a book and you say well it's also a podcast so you can listen to it on the train or you can listen to it in the gym You know, yeah. and you make it available to people right. who won't read a book you know mm. Who won't cart a book around. Also, you? to me,
2: I yeah, I don't read. Um, I, I read lots of books, as you can see on the table. I though. can see there's many a, books. There's loads of books.
1: One called I, hog? I can see just there. Yeah, I'm yeah, good to think what a, that is. That's a, the cookbook. Is that pork or is that motorbikes?
2: Um, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it is it is pork. Yeah. Okay, cool. I've got all these these cookbooks here. But I, book I don't actually pork. use any of them. If I'm honest with you, that's decoration. But but they're very showy. They're lovely. All the ones on the table are the ones that I'm trying to read at the moment and get through. I'm just reading the paradox of choice. That's a good one. I cool. Recommend that the Miracle Mornings. I read all these, but I don't sit down and read novels ever. So, but listening mm-hmm. to listening to your podcast, I thoroughly enjoyed it because you suddenly get you get engaged in the story. It's, I felt uh, yeah, like- I
1: mean, hopefully that's that's part of. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard sometimes to get into it to get into a, a book, and you know, books start as I'm finding now trying to adapt uh, the first one into into TV episodes into into an offer of TV episodes. Let's mm. say books can start in a di- can start in a different way to a tv thing and what and what people are are geared up for mentally is something that starts bang and you're right in the middle of it and a, a book you w- will start more gently than that and sometimes that works against you, people engaging in it mm. you know and so it's um it's a it's a it's kind of a it's kind of a dying sort of skill to read a, to read a novel i think and uh, but people think, will enjoy it i think it. people are getting more into it i, don't, I think the mobile I don't phone that, no. and the, the, i mean i the, think that i think that it's one of the things which is which is good about doing it as a podcast is that people can can dedicate let's say, 30 or 40 minutes to listening to, to yeah. that while they're doing something else or while they're on the way somewhere or while they're out for a jog or something like that. And by that time, by the time they've heard 30, 40 minutes of it, they're into that then. I'm gonna... And it's hard to get into a book if it, if it doesn't grab you straight away.
2: Well, I've listened to a bit of it, but I've decided next time I listen to it, I'm going to listen to it on times two, speed up, because that's very silent movie. Uh very silent movie
1: uh, <laughs>
2: <yeah>. <laughs> but actually my voice works really well <laughs> how, how do you what do you think's going on in there obviously obviously those guys have had such an influence mm. throughout I mean still physical comedy which is invented yes, yes. by them still you know everybody's still doing that everywhere um, where do you think we're at with the comedy movement at the moment I'm calling it a movement okay, industry yeah, it's not really a movement
1: is it mm. it's an, it is an, it's an industry it's definitely an industry I mean I think the, the, uh, to be a comedian now, the, you've got a much more structured career path than has ever been uh, available before, and you can see a straight line from oh, I'll, I'll put together ten minutes of a stand-up act, and then I'll do. Uh, then I'll get bigger and bigger gigs. Then I'll get on a TV panel show. Then I'll maybe have a special. Then I'll do this, and then, particularly in America, these are the people they look to to be uh, to be actors, and the assumption that if you're a good stand-up comedian you'll be at that'll transfer to comedy acting is one that's that's very prevalent in america hmm. it's kind of little bit less so here i think because one or two comedians without naming the name of josh Widdicombe, have had a sitcom which uh, in which the uh, you see them acting in a way that that isn't doesn't quite give you what they give you as a as a stand-up do you know what i mean
2: I've got to say, by the way, that you are a writer of comedy as well as uh, you've, you've written with four comedians, you've written yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Evening with Gary Lineker, a play, you write yeah, films, yeah. you're, I've, you're I've, writing I've everything, so.
1: All sorts of things, yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, i from, and... from uh, yeah, books and films and some that have been made and, <laughs> pla- and some that have not, and uh, plays for the theatre, yeah, and radio, and so I've tried to do, I've tried to do. Uh, anything that comes along, really. I'd like to have a go. I, I'd like to try everything once.
2: How's that process? Because, <laughs> I mean, I couldn't think about writing. I'm, I've been trying to write a book, actually, as the viewers of this podcast. So, so you have this been thinking this about it? Yeah, yeah. I have been thinking about it, but I just literally don't know where to start. I can't be bothered. I mean, it's... <laughs> 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 I mean, it's, it's the truth. It is the truth. I, yeah. I'm, I'm,
1: yeah. I'm struggling with that. I mean, it's... Uh, I think... Every writer will, will tell you a different that they work in a different way. And for me, it's a lot of, it's a lot of displacement activity. You know, it's a lot of, oh, that, I'll do a bit of writing, but that needs doing first. And, <laughs> I'll do, and then about four o'clock, I think, if I don't do anything now, I've wasted the whole day. But on Sky Atlantic, there's an old West Wing. Now, <laughs> and so I'll let the rabbit out for a run. And then, you know, I'll do something at five. You know, a lot of it is displacement activity. I'm very suspicious, I must say, of, of people who tell you their writing schedule. Right. And, you know, I, I remember reading a few years ago, I remember reading someone asked Jeffrey Archer, how do you write, Geoffrey? What's the process? You know, Jeffrey Archer of all people. I know he may have been in jail at the time, but Jeffrey Archer said, Archer um, said, well, what I do is I get up. I write between seven and nine in the morning. Then I have breakfast nine until nine thirty. And then I write again from 9.30 to 11.30. And then I have uh, levenses 11.30 to 12.00, I have a cup of coffee and a biscuit. And then I write again from uh, 12 o'clock until 2 o'clock. And then at 2 o'clock I have lunch. And then the rest of the day is mine. And I thought, no wonder your books are shit, man. (laughs) 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 Because, you know, that is just... You can't... uh, I can't force it in that, in that way. I can't say, I'll sit down and write now and I'll write whatever comes in the time that I'm sitting and writing. For me, writing is, is a 24-hour thing. It's a 24-7 thing. Yeah. I'm thinking about a, I'm thinking about a story and I'll have an idea while I'm doing something else, while I'm walking, while I, and then I'll sit down and write it when it comes to me. Yeah. But I'm thinking about it all the time. Do you enjoy it? Yes, I do. It's what I set out to do and I still enjoy doing it, Yeah.